Hello and welcome back to Elm Town. It's your old friend Kevin. It's been a while. It's good to uh, good to be speaking with you again. And I'd like to welcome my guest for this episode of Elm Town, Ian McKenzie. Hi, Ian. Hello, Kevin. How's it going? Listeners might know Ian from his work on Elm Geometry and more recently Elm 3D Scene. We will be diving into all of that. But before we do, I want to uh, take a moment to acknowledge our sponsors, Culture Amp. I am doing this on a work day. Uh, I am the director of front end engineering at Culture Amp, where we use Elm in production every day to help make the workplaces of the world better places to work. Uh, if, if you are interested in doing Elm at work and you happen to be in, in our part of the world or think you might be in the not too distant future, feel free to reach out. Uh, I'm Kevin at cultureamp.com. That's my email and uh, hit me up anytime. Uh, and of course, I want to uh, thank once again, Xavier Ho for editing these episodes. He makes us sound great every single time. Elm geometry is something that has popped up on my radar a number of times over the years. Uh, your talk at ElmConf in 2019 last year, putting a 3D rendering engine in front of all of that mathematical power uh, suddenly makes it twice, if not more than twice as useful, at least in my world as a UI engineer when I'm thinking of what can I put in user interfaces. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited about it, because, like, and exactly for the reason that you said that, I mean, sort of like a geometry library is it's something you don't think of like, oh, this is what I want, right? Like, um, you sort of, maybe you're starting a project for a few days and you're like, oh, you know, it's kind of silly for me writing a rotation function. Is there a library that does this? You don't think to yourself, ah, what I really need from my next project is a cool geometry library. But you might think, hey, I want to make a cool 3D animation, right? I want to show something on the screen. like. Yeah, see how many, how, many, how many new people start using it to do cool stuff with it and how that grows the, the community. Well, well, we will check in on where you're at and how it's going. But I thought to start with, let's turn back time and talk about yourself and uh, how you got into Elm. So I think you know, I mentioned a couple of my a couple of conference talks. I've sort of I've been involved for a long time in a, a robotics competition. Um, first robotics, sort of like this high school robotics competition. I've been involved with since I was a high school student way back in like 2000. And I sort of got really interested in designing things like, you know, robots and gearboxes and various components. And I, I use a lot of CAD computer-aided design software. And a lot, a lot of CAD programs, um, they're what, you know, they're called like parametric CAD. And the idea is you can, you can change certain dimensions. Like you can change, you know, the size, the, the, total, the overall width of something. And everything else is for like stretch and accommodate to match that. Every dimension is defined in terms of some parameter. Yeah, or, or you can like, you know, you can put a hole at the midpoint of a plate. And then, you know, if you change the size of the plate, it'll sort of the hole will move to stay in the middle. And then you can put something you know, directly below that hole and set up all these sorts of you know, relationships between different things. Gotcha. So there's like very few, if any, absolute dimensions. It's all, everything's defined in relationship to each other. And what is the rule for this to stretch if something changes? Yeah. So I really enjoyed this. And it was like, it's fun to put together a model. Like, how can I set this up so that like I can change this one thing and everything else sort of moves around and, and shuffles. But you, like, you eventually start hitting limitations. Because it's basically like certain dimensions are functions of other dimensions. So like in a in a gearbox, right? You have you gear things down. Um, you have like one a smaller gear that drives a larger gear, and so you know if the smaller shaft is spinning at a certain speed, the larger ones at a slower speed, but higher torque. And if you want you know a very high gear ratio, like two hundred to one or something that you might have in like a cordless drill, you can't do that with a single stage. You have to have like one gear that drives a bigger gear. 
And then like on the same shaft, it's a bigger gear. You have like a smaller gear that drives a second bigger gear. And so you have sort of two steps of gearing down. And so there's this process of, okay, say I want, you know, I, I'm designing um, a drive system for a robot. And I know here's the motor I want to use and here's how fast I want the robot to go. And so I need, I don't know, a 150 to one reduction or something. And then you have to choose, well, how many stages do I need to make that happen? How many stages and what is what is the jump at each stage? What is the ratio at each stage? Yeah. And then, and then how do I lay out? Like, okay, I need three stages. I need these sort of ratios at each stage. Then I sort of start laying out, you know, where the, sh the three shafts or those gears go. And it's a pretty mechanical process. Um, there's not sort of a lot of sort of incredible artistic creativity going on there. But like the choice of, you know, should I use two stages or three? And I sort of, I wanted to be able to put that kind of logic in my models. Dare I guess, refactor it when you change your mind. Exactly. But I mean, like the fundamental thing was I wanted to put sort of more interesting logic. So instead of putting in just some dimensions, put in, okay, I want this overall gear ratio and have it sort of make all the interesting, all the sort of, I guess, non-interesting decisions about how many stages does it need and how should we lay it out? So rather than working in primitive gears, you might want to work in a gear set that uh, automatically calculates the number of gears and their ratios based on... And so what I eventually sort of, you know, realized what I wanted is sort of, I effectively wanted to write code, right? Like I wanted to write logic. Was this all still for that robotics competition? Like, were you going back and participating in it year after year from high school up to university? Or were your, were your applications of this stuff changing over time? Uh, you know, I sort of competed with in it in, in high school and then throughout university. I sort of went back and helped out various high school teams. Uh, but then I just sort of, I'd, I'd get interested in, oh, I want to make a design a really cool gearbox. And maybe it's like way too weird and complex to actually use on a you know, competitive robot. It would be for more of a novelty, but I, I wanted to try it out um, or I wanted to sort of experiment with ideas in CAD. And then I started getting into all sorts of crazy things like contingency variable transmissions and, um, you know, all sorts of weird, crazy stuff. Are these robots being built custom right down to the individual gears for this competition or are you working with stock parts generally? No, it's, it's, it's a lot of stock parts. Um, so you're, you're, you're typically you're given a kit of parts, which has, you know, here's a set of all the motors you can use. Um, and there's sort of the control system and a bunch of pneumatics, um, components, uh, so like you no know, air pistons and things. Um, but then you can also go buy a lot of whatever you want. Um, so they're within some restrictions, but, um, you know, you can buy your own gears and your own shafts and bearings and various other mechanical components or make your own. Um, I mean, making your own gears is very unusual. Um, cause they're just very hard to make, but lots of other things. Yeah. You could, you can make yourself and it's sort of up to each team what they want to do. So in your Elm Europe 2018 talk, you talk about this journey that ended, uh, with discovering Elm and you, you started with C++, moved to Scala because you needed something more high level where you didn't have to ma manage the memory yourself. Then you decided you needed some visual output for your work, and it seemed like all the interesting work on that was happening in the browser. Uh, so you explored Dart and then landed on Elm. What what made Elm feel like you had found the right thing? And maybe what, what made Dart not feel that way? Yeah, I mean, Dart, Dart, Dart's a quite a nice language. I mean, I still, I still like it. It's out of Google, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was developed by, developed by Google. Um, it was originally, you know, this very ambitious thing is meant to replace JavaScript effectively on the web or be an alternative to it and, you know, have 
Yeah, I've I've always seen it as a a compiled to JavaScript language similar to Elm. I think I've most seen it lately uh, in uh, the SAS package that a lot of web applications yeah. use to to transpile uh, SAS, this higher level language, down to CSS. And the fastest uh, non-architecture specific implementation of that available today is written in Dart. So I guess performance is a big priority for Dart. It is. I mean, I think it was it was uh, a lot of the people who created Dart were people who worked on Google's V8 JavaScript engine. Mm, mm -hmm. And so they, they were sort of extremely intimately well acquainted with like, these are the weird little corners of JavaScript um, that prevent us from making certain optimizations. But it's evolved and you know, now it's moving into mobile um, with, with Flutter uh, so you can make mobile apps directly in, in Dart and it doesn't and it doesn't go through JavaScript at that point. It has its own sort of runtime. So I mean it, it is cool and it's sort of, you know, I still keep my eye on it. But um, it's also not that different. I mean if you've programmed in JavaScript or, or Java, you can sort of use Dart and it feels comfortable within like two hours. Um, okay. sort of the syntax and how everything works. It's object oriented, inheritance, you know, all the usual stuff. But sort of the original question like what sort of what really drew me to Elm, uh, I think it was sort of two main things. Um, first was just you know, it's a functional language, uh, which is, I think, something I'd wanted for a while without knowing it under that term or even knowing that it was really a thing. I remember, you know, I, back in university, I did a lot of MATLAB coding. Um, and I remember talking to my professor and saying, you know, sometimes I write certain functions in MATLAB and they feel really good because they, they're almost, they read almost like a definition, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. As opposed to this complex series of, of steps. And then when I sort of, sort of found out what functional programming was, it's all about, you know, you sort of define your output in terms of your inputs. Um, so like, ah, that's sort of what I was going for, right? That's the sort of, that's the style of program that really appealed to me. Um, so there was that, here's this, you know, functional language that works in the browser. Uh, and the other one was the Elm architecture. I mean, I've, I've, I've done a, quite a bit of UI coding, uh, primarily in like C++ desktop applications using things like Qt. I just I, I I had been frustrated for years that nobody seemed to be sort of putting much thought into what's a good design pattern for making a user interface. And of course, like you see where this is going. I, you know, read some article I think on Medium. I really wish I could find it again. And that sort of <laughs> talked about Elm a bit. Um, and the Elm architecture sort of immediately like yes, you have ADF, you have you know model which just save your application. You have messages which sort of events that have happened and that updates your model and. You have a view of your model, which, you know, what, what does the thing currently look like? And that sort of just immediately appeared. Yes, I can, that makes total sense as a way to sort mm. of think about a user interface. And I can see that scaling really well and not turning into sort of massive spaghetti code. Um, and so sort of the combination of the two things was sort of what I think initially really, really drew me in. Is everyone who's working in robotics that disinterested in programming or, or programming languages? I mean, I, there are certainly a lot of people who are interested in programming. I mean, all these robots get programmed. Um, although honestly, if the, for, for first robotics, it's um, most of the work on most teams is, is actually just building the thing. And frequently you have, you know, almost all the team who are sort of mechanical engineering types and one right. poor long suffering programmer <laughs> um, who's usually given, you know, two days at the end of the, you know, two months build period when the people have finally finished building the, t the thing and then they sort of throw it at the programmer and say, all right, make it work. What does a robot need to do to win the first robotics competition? Are these, are these mobile robots that fight each other or are they? No, uh, it's not violent. 
Um, it's more like, <laughs> more like a sport, like, you know, like soccer or football. And I realize that in many parts of the world, that's the same thing. But so, yeah, it, every year it's a little bit different. They change the game up so you can't just enter the same robot year after year. Uh-huh. Um, but it's usually something like, you know, you're, you're picking up balls and shooting them into some container or lifting them up into some container. You're playing sort of two alliances of three teams each. So, you know, every match you're sort of randomly paired up with and against different teams. And so you come up with a strategy and, you, you know, you play for a couple of minutes against your the opposing alliance. You're trying to score more points than them. And are these robots autonomous in all of this or are they being controlled? Typically, they're autonomous for the first 15 seconds or so of a match, and then basically very fancy remote-controlled cars for the remaining two minutes. They try to strike a balance. Um, I mean, they, they, one of the big things at first is that they want to make it really exciting um, and uh, you know inspiring. They always talk about how you are what you celebrate, right? And currently, you know, it started in America. Like America celebrates sports, and so people want to get into sports. And so when you go to events, you know, there are sort of high production values. There's, you know, expensive lighting and um, big screens and loud music and a DJ and a master of ceremonies and announcer. And they try to make it very much like a sporting event. Yeah. Like what was your best showing in the first robotics competition? <laughs> uh, I, we were world champions one year. Wow. When I was on Team 1114, some back in 2008. That was, uh, that was a good year. I've, I'm picturing you as the advisor going, all right, kids, like, I've been working on it for a decade. <laughs> yeah, well, but you'll, 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 it's, it's balance, right? I mean, you sort of want to let the students pick their own path, too. I, certainly, at some point, I will, I, I will sort of like, get my feet back into that community a bit more. And I'm still involved, but start saying, hey, here's some cool tools for designing robots in a, in a cool programming language. And then I'm sure some people pick it up because there are lots of programmers in the community who are interested in new, new and cool things. Now, I, you know, I currently, ever since graduation, um, I work at a company called Arup, uh, which is actually it's a, it's a civil engineering consulting firm. So the vast majority of people there are sort of your you know, traditional, quote unquote, engineers who are designing you know, bridges and buildings and tunnels, all sorts of things that, you know, designing some Ferris wheels or I think uh, like, the, like the Las Vegas Eye, like the biggest Ferris wheel in the world. I think Arup did a big chunk of that. Yeah, so like my, my day job there is actually I work in C++ all day long. I work on a pedestrian simulation package, which is pretty cool. So it lets you, it's called, called mass motion. It lets you sort of uh, simulate how pedestrians move through things like train stations or airports or museums or whatever. To what end? Is it is it like a, a, an architectural design tool or is it measuring stresses that passage of people put on things? It, no, it's a, it's a design tool just to sort of try to improve you know, the experience for pedestrians. So right. um, you know, started off with things like, uh, sorry, I'll in fact, the, the Fulton Street Transit Center in New York for a really huge new subway station. And just trying to get an idea of like, you know, as you have thousands of people moving through this place, are you gonna, where are you going to get congestion, right? Like how long does it actually take people to get from the subway out to street level? Um, do we need to like widen some stairs here? Or do we need to like add some more turnstiles at this entrance to handle, you know, the load that we expect? And so that's sort of, it's, it's used for that. Um, it's used for things like evacuations. So, you know, hey, I have this new stadium. Can I evacuate it in 12 minutes? Um, or are people going to get, you know, is there going to be some massive congestion somewhere that's going to prevent people from, from getting out effectively? Something I've seen happen in my world a lot is people who get exposed to Elm then take some of those patterns back with them to their 
their other languages and you see them uh, writing more functional JavaScript or more functional Ruby, even though those languages aren't necessarily, you're not necessarily playing to their strengths, your brain has started to think that way and you've, you've decided that code written that way is more readable and so you, you try to apply those patterns where you can. Is, is that even possible in C++? Oh yes, I mean certainly. Like you can you can write functional C plus plus, and you can write immutable data structures and everything. But again, I, I, as you said, it's not necessarily playing to the strengths um, of the language, and it's awkward and doesn't always work to try to start changing certain parts of it to use other patterns. Yeah, you've got to think of the other engineers who will come at after you and go, whoa, this whole patch is very different and I don't understand how it works. <laughs> chunk of the code is all different from this other old chunk of the code. Sometimes a bit of interesting sort of back and forth, like how much how much immutability and you know pure functions can I can I include in this part of the code base before it starts to get just starts getting weird. I, I have started work on a couple of Elm projects at Arup. Uh, one of the first one was Arup was actually it was, it was, they were sort of designing a new sort of signaling system for subway trains. So the idea is that, you know, as uh, using RFID tags and as the subways would sort of pass over the RFID tags, you could get a sense of, um, you know, whether you're on schedule, um, you know, how far ahead the, lat the, the train in front of you is, because they were sort of writing a tiny amount of data to the RFID tag as they passed over it. Um, and they wanted a little sort of demonstration of, you know, as an operator driving one of these trains, uh, what would it look like to have all this sort of extra information available to you? I basically, I actually got, I got involved writing a little app. Um, it sounds a little more exciting than it was. Uh, effectively, a little multiplayer game that let you use some game pads to drive around trains, just from sort of like a top-down view. Uh, but then you could sort of like see a little dashboard, and you could see your speed and how where you were relative to your schedule and how far ahead the next train was. Um, and all the sort of information that you know, you'd have there that you wouldn't have um, in, a, in, a, in a standard subway car. And I remember having uh, a realization at some point that uh, a speed in miles per hour worked out pretty well as a number of, of pixels per second on screen. And so I could have sort of used that. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, and uh, this is actually sort of th this I wrote before, um, uh, before I developed Elm units. And so at some point I'd love to go back. And you know, at the time I sort of, I was worried that if I tried to have sort of a proper set of, you know, I'm gonna simulate the world in real world units of, you know, miles and hours and everything. Um, and then display in pixels that I just have, you know, it would be way too messy and error prone to try to keep track um, what part of the code was in real world units and what part was in sort of on-screen units. Um, Cause everything is a float, right? But since then, Elm Units was created, and I'd love to go back to that code at some point and try to sort of basically rewrite it in a proper sort of unit-safe way where, you know, you did simulate the trains in real-world units um, and then just sort of convert into on-screen units for, for display. So your, your Elm Europe 2018 talk was all about Elm geometry, and particularly the some discoveries you made in the design of that API that uh, once you developed this this way of thinking of things either as what a polygon is, for example, leading you to design types, and what a polygon can do or what you can do with a polygon uh, leading you to design your functions. And 
I, I guess uh, I wanted to ask, you know, in hindsight, having now designed a, a number of other uh, code bases, do you still carry that philosophy into your Elm API design? Yeah, I mean, I still think it's it's definitely definitely true. Um, mm. Sort of like the whole uh, is versus can distinction, I think is a really useful one. It helps you avoid backing yourselves into weird like API design corners where you sort of intermingled those two, I guess. I mean, if you can think sort of like very honestly about just like what is this this noun and how can I represent that most accurately? And you almost have to prevent yourself at that point from thinking about what can I do with this thing? Then, you know, you once you have a design of, okay, this is my, you know, this is my data structure, uh, perhaps it's a custom type and I think it, you know, it can be in one of these three states or it's, you know, it's a record and it has these three fields which have these particular types themselves or whatever. You can then start saying, well, what, you know, what, what things should I be able to do with a point or with a polygon or with a moving to Elm 3D scene, like a mesh or a shadow or uh, a light. And uh, then if you run into issues there and like, oh, I can't do this thing um, with this data model. And then, then you have to answer like, okay, is, is this, is this a problem with my data model? It, or is it just true that, no, I shouldn't be able to do that with, you know, just a light. I need a light and something else to be able to accomplish that. In the example you gave in your talk of uh, a unit vector versus a vector, it was, you know, two, two things that you had been out of habit treating as one thing, and you realized you, it was difficult to make your API do things to one of those subtypes and you realize actually i've got two different things here uh so so i guess those kinds of points of friction can also tease out new types that are missing in your design yep exactly it's okay to make two different things that's like that's a definitely another very strong lesson um perhaps even more so than like is versus can um and that's that you know it comes up in lots of other places like you know in elm in elm units for example which was you know well after the talk at, at elm europe uh, there are things like, you know, length um, and duration, which are very easy to represent. And, you know, they sort of, they're, they're very similar in a lot of ways. You can add two lengths, you can add two durations. It makes sense to talk about like a zero length or a zero duration. But then temperature starts to get a little bit weird, right? You can sort of, you can still convert between two temperatures in different units. Um, but mathematically, it's not the same as converting between two lengths or two durations. And you can't add two temperatures really, it doesn't really make sense. Um, and so I struggled with that for a bit and the answer was to have two different things. You have, you know, a temperature, which is sort of an absolute temperature, like, you know, room temperatures, 20 degrees Celsius or whatever. And then a delta temperature, global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's a, a delta. And those are two different things, right? You can take a temperature and you can add a delta to it to get another temperature. One of my pet peeves is when time APIs use the same type for a time of day and a period of time. Yep. I was happy to let the existing like Elm time package handle the concept of, you know, a point in time. And then Elm units just, just to have, only has to represent duration because that's not covered by Elm time. And so it was, a, it was a very natural, clean separation between the two. And there's a bit of integration there. You can, in Elm units, you can say, you know, duration dot from T1, T2, which are time types from Elm time, and then it will give a duration back. 
was all of this API design just coming out of uh, your own experience with the software as you were developing it? Uh, something that's happened a couple of times in the Elm community is uh, a, a high-profile package has come out, and uh, Evan, for example, would say, ooh, I have some thoughts on that API and how it might be improved. The author and Evan pair on it for a little bit, and then a 2.0 version of the package comes out with a completely redesigned uh, API. Have you had any outside eyes on the the APIs you've built in in Elm Geometry, Elm Unit, and and more recently, Elm 3D Scene? Uh, oh yes, yeah. Elm Geometry, the initial version. I mean, I I didn't know that many people in the Elm community at the time, and so that one I just sort of pushed out um, based on my own experience, you know, working with geometry stuff in C plus uh, plus, but sort of the second major version of Elm Geometry. Um, it's really, yeah, it's, it's version 3.0. There was sort of a, a temporary version two, which never really existed officially. Um, that was, there was a lot of feedback from the community there. So, you know, there it was mostly a lot on Slack. Um, it was it was a really interesting process because going from sort of version one to version two or version three, um, it, was, it, it really was, it was gonna break any code that used Elm Geometry. It was. And sort of like adding unit safety and coordinate safety, and so and and it would it was sort of going to make code a little bit more verbose in some cases, mm -hmm. um, and so I was very concerned. I didn't I didn't want to drive people away, um, and so I did a lot of, you know, just posting. Hey, here's something I'm doing on Slack, and here's some you know gists of APIs that I'm looking at. How this work for you? Does this seem reasonable? Um, some sort of some great discussions there. Were you able to keep the 1.0 version maintained for people who couldn't make the move? Oh yes, yep. No, I mean it's, it's sort of automatically it's it's still up there. Absolutely, I've I've mentioned a couple of times. I'm happy to maintain that for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, probably not adding features to it, but um, certainly if anybody finds bugs, I will I will fix them because that's important. So that was that was a really interesting process. Uh, Elm units actually, I, I did have a a chat with Evan at some point. Uh, and actually, I also had a, ch a chat with him uh, about Elm 3D Scene, um, and there were some sort of really interesting some points there. And so that's uh, part of why, I mean, I was really hoping to have it released in time for ElmConf back in September, and that didn't happen. Although it's, it is, you know, it is up available as a GitHub repository, and you can clone it and start playing around with it yourself if you want to. Uh, but there were some sort of, sort of refactorings that came out of some chats I had with Heaven at uh, ElmConf um, that I wanted to incorporate. So we're getting close, I think. I think mm. it's mostly feature complete now, so we're mostly working on, on docs and things. It's okay if the answer is no, but are, are there any particular aspects of, of one or more of these packages that like that detail of the design you credit to a conversation you had with someone? If early versions of Elm Geometry um, had non-opaque data types for you know, like points, points and vectors and things. At the time, I thought, oh, you know, these are just these are very basic things, and it's nice occasionally to be able to construct them directly. And uh, one of the sort of early people I worked with, I was, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but uh, Matthew Pisenberg, he wrote some stuff about. I think he has still some packages on the package repository for uh, sort of mouse and touch handling. Um, he's made some cool sort of drawing apps. Um, used Elm Geometry a bit, and he definitely kept repeatedly, gently uh, pushing me. To say, hey, and you really, you think maybe, maybe you should consider making these opaque. 
And as I added sort of more complex types, uh, that became very valuable. Um, so I think, you know, for like a 3D point, it has X, Y, Z fields. That's, you know, that's fairly straightforward. Um, and I think, you know, if I was going to, you know, sort of do something, change that internal representation, it would almost certainly be breaking changes the API anyways, because that would mean I'd be making some very major changes. Um, but for other things, like I have changed the internal representation of um, an arc, a circular arc, because I wanted to be able to support like degenerate arcs that actually have no curvature. And, um, you know, if it has no curvature, it doesn't have a center point. Uh, so you can't represent it as sort of you know, a center point and a radius and a start point, for example. And so now there is a sort of a funky internal representation that lets you, lets that work. Um, and I'm now very glad that. So that edge case representation is for most users of the API going to be an, a distraction you don't want them to have to deal with. Yeah. Well, it just meant that I could, I could, I could change the internal representation without it being, you know, a breaking API change or anything. I see. Yeah. 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 Um, which was, which is very valuable. And it's sort of nice just have everything be opaque for consistency. So that was, that was one, I think, uh, actually, uh, Martin Stewart, who was on your, your show a couple episodes back, um, he's had some great feedback, um, from going through sort of the games he's been building with Elm and just sort of pointing out pain points and just like, you no know, missing parts of the API. And so there've been lots of times when it's like, yep, you're right. That's not the best way to do that. That's awkward and inefficient. In this use case, you brought up that I hadn't thought of. And so let's make a change there. Those are some great examples you gave though. Um, I'm really fascinated with uh, with the how a, how a piece of software can be the result of collaborative design. One more example that I thought of, um, Elm units. Um, there are, you know, you have different, packages for different, you know, length and time and things, uh, length, duration, um, speed, acceleration, all these sorts of stuff. And then there's a sort of a, a quantity module, which lets you do generic operations. So you can like add any two quantities of the same type, subtract them, divide them, um, do a whole bunch of cool stuff. And my initial plan for that package um, was much more limited. It would just sort of, it only have the individual quantities. Anytime you actually wanted to use them, you'd have to basically unwrap them and deal with the floats that were inside them. And uh, I remember talking to uh, Joel Kenneville, which I'm butchering his last name a little bit, um, at Elm Europe. And I remember him saying, oh, but I really, it'd be really cool to be able to, you know, work on these in a type safe way um, and sort of do operations on these, on these quantities, uh, you know, without having to sort of drop down into plain raw floats. And so that was sort of another place where he definitely sort of pushed me to sort of Okay, let, let's take some time and see if we can figure out a good way to actually do this. Um, and again, yeah, glad that I did. So, thank you, Joel. Let's dig into Elm 3D scene a bit because uh, you you, you kind of debuted it to the world with uh, ElmConf 2019. I am well familiar with the phenomenon of conference-driven development, <laughs> <laughs> where you'll make a a big push yep. on a piece of software so that you can talk about it in your conference talk. What was the what was the ramp up to the unveiling of Elm 3D scene, and uh, how how has development gone since that unveiling? I think I mentioned it. Like initially, I thought it'd be great if I could actually you know publish it on stage or some you know, big fancy gesture like that. And you know maybe a couple months, two or three months out, it sort of became obvious that like no, that's not going to happen. Especially if I want to spend any time at all on making decent slides, which you know which you should. Especially for a graphics package. 
Yeah. Um, well, yeah, exactly. Um, but also just, you know, you, you, you do want to provide a good experience for, you know, people going to the conference. Like, you know, you don't want to just get up there and be like, well, you know, I didn't really prepare this, but whatever, I'll just talk for half an hour, I guess. So I sort of, yeah, it became obvious I wasn't going to be able to actually publish it as a full package, you know, documented and everything. And then I guess the, the, the focus kind of shifted to say, okay, well, it's, it's not going to be published, but can I make sure that everything it depends on is published so that you can just, you know, clone the repository and, you know, CD into the uh, examples directory and say, you know, Elm Reactor and start playing around with the examples. Yeah. So it's not a package yet, but it is an app uh, and it, all of the packages it depends on are public. Yeah. So, the, you know, the examples folder is, is an app, um, is an Elm app, which... Um, which works, and it depends only on published packages. Um, and up until literally the night before um, the talk, that was not the case uh, because I was making a whole bunch of changes in Elm geometry to support Elm 3D scene. I wanted to make sure you know that and a couple other related smaller packages um, were published because sort of you know I was developing on my own machine, and I sort of all had those in you know parallel checkouts under the same parent directory and I was they were all sort of referring to each other by relative path. And so you had to do, you know, you had to like get check out like six different repositories for Elm 3D scene to work, even just like the examples folder. And so I thought, well this isn't this isn't good. At the very least I want me I want people to be able to sort of, you know, the keeners and um, to be able to sort of check out this repository and just type go basically Elm Reactor um, and have it be able to pull in all the dependencies from from the package repository. And so there was um Definitely some uh, mad typing in my hotel room the night before, and that's that's actually where the uh, the version two of Elm Geometry came from. I knew I, I wasn't totally happy with the API yet, and uh, so I pushed out a version which is basically just so that you could run Elm 3D scene examples well. Um, and then indeed, you know, a little while later, made a couple more breaking API changes pushed up version three, and that was when I actually announced as, you know, this is the new version of Elm Geometry, which everybody can use. What is the itch that you personally have that you are scratching with Elm 3D scene at this point? It goes back to like, you know, ultimately I want to, I, I want to write a program that designs some 3D object, um, whether that's, you know, a gearbox or whether that's now um, a skytraper or a bridge. Um, sort of, you know, being influenced by the, the company I now work for. So, and, you know, ultimately, ultimately, that's what I want to do. I want to be able to write an Elm program that moves some sliders and, you know, you pick some options from combo boxes or whatever. Uh, and then you see, you know, Elm generates a model from those inputs based on some interesting logic and then shows you the result. Um, but to show the result, uh, typically, that requires rendering something in 3D. And so, you know, Elm Geometry was all about sort of a foundation um, for doing graphics, but also just generating the actual geometry, right? It's actually sort of an interesting point that when I, when I say geometry, most people think, oh, graphics, right? And well, well yes, but that's, that's not the only thing you can do with geometry, right? If you have a whole bunch of triangles, yes, you can render them um, using MGL, uh, you can also output them to an STL file and then go 3D print it, maybe without ever having actually visualized it in, in any way. So it's sort of, you know, geometry package is sort of a, a building block for a lot of different things. But sort of Elm 3D scene is 
the sort of like the natural next step um, along the path to sort of having a really good ecosystem for those kinds of apps where you can yeah generate the design of a cool gearbox and then maybe see it in the 3D view and send it off for 3D printing and generate some drawings of it and anything like that. What I'm wondering is, is there a specific thing that you are hoping to one day be able to design using your own software that once 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 these this suite of of Elm packages reaches a certain level of maturity, you're going to go and design that thing with it. I would love it if it could be something, you know, environmentally focused. Um, you know, if I could if I could use Elm geometry and Elm 3D scene to, you know, help somehow help design a more efficient windmill um, or, you know, better, you know, a, a way to make it easier to um, design and build new train systems. So it's, you know, now it's, we can build a new train line at one-tenth the cost because all the manufacturing is automated. Um, and this means we can have more trains and I would be super happy with that. I noticed that on your README for Elm 3D scene that you've you've got the call out for if anyone is doing anything climate related and they are wishing Elm 3D scene could do one more thing to make that possible. That's those are issues you would like to especially receive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I've tried to put that sort of notice on most of my repositories, and we've actually we've had a couple of discussions about um, maybe turning that into sort of another badge which you, anybody can add to their repository, like a little, I don't know, you know, green thing with a little leaf icon, that open source for climate action or some similar message. And then you, know, you click on that and it takes you to just a simple web page with like a, manif a little, little manifesto, um, sort of saying this philosophy of like, hey, yeah, let's, let's try to help out um, anybody who's using open source to do try things to try to address the climate crisis. Absolutely. There were a couple of things in your talk at ElmConf that I had questions about. One of the lighting uh, types that you showed in your talk was ambient lighting, and you showed a visual example of what it looked like. And some of your code snippets included, uh, you know, for this scene, does it have ambi ambient lighting? Yes. But we never actually saw what the type signature or how to create or define some ambient lighting. We never saw what that API looks like. Was that still in flux at the point where you gave your talk? Is it was it especially complicated and cut for time, or or is that something you can talk about? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd have to remember. I mean, I certainly, you know, I guess it was a little bit in flux because it has changed a bit since then, made a little more flexible. I suspect um, I just wasn't totally happy with it. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm not, frankly, I'm not sure. I, I still not sure. I totally am. For those who who may not have seen the talk, and the link is in the show notes, you should definitely go watch it. But ambient lighting is that that kind of lighting that simulates the glow of light reflected off of surrounding surfaces, and it gives a very nice, soft, realistic rendering to things. Um, I, I, you know, I used to play with ray tracers twenty years ago, and back then. And realistic ambient lighting was the holy grail of lighting that, that none of those free software packages would let you do back then. Uh, is this something that, you know, a GPU can do out of the box these days and you just need to tell it to? Or is there something especially mathematically challenging about uh, um, creating an ambient lighting effect? I mean, it is very hard to get sort of a really good, uh, really good ambient lighting. Uh, and to speak it across, you know, a lot of different light bounces. 
and that's not something GPUs have historically been very good at. Um, and we're just starting to get GPUs that are sort of really supporting real-time ray tracing, and you know, eventually we'll be able to do that in the web, but that's still a ways off. Things like a light bulb, or you know, a certain point light, um, or the sun, you can you can sort of model that pretty well as a sort of a very single bounce, right? Light comes from the sun, it bounces off a particular point in an object and ends up in our eye. Ambient light, light just sort of it's it's coming from everywhere around you, you know, an infinite number of, of different points. And you know, each of those points sort of reflects off a surface at a different angle because it's coming in from a different angle. And so trying to accurately actually model that and have that show up accurately and well um, is, is really hard. Another thing that's kind of complicates a little bit uh, for Elm specifically is that most of the modern, most of the modern techniques for doing sort of, you know, in ambient or environmental lighting um, involve using a texture. So you have some sort of big texture image or set of texture images, which basically are, it's effectively just, you know, photos of, of the surrounding environment. Um, and then you use that, you know, you sort of, you, you, you sample those, those textures at a bunch of different points, um, to sort of see, you know, to, you know, and that's what you use to figure out how much every individual part of every surface in your scene is, how well it's lit. Um, the issue is that in, in Elm, um, textures, you know, you have to load them using sort of over HTTP, um, just like any other image. And so it's asynchronous. Um, you have to, you know, you have to like add some, uh, some tasks and some messages and some state handling to your app. And part of me is that I really wanted to uh, support or allow you to make fairly nice scenes um, in Elm 3D scene very quickly, you know, just without having to have a whole lot of plumbing like that. Um, and so I want, I really wanted to have some ways of having you know, even just relatively simple ambient lighting that didn't require pulling in a whole bunch of textures. Um, so that you only had to do that once you were sort of legitimately getting into sort of some more advanced stuff. And it was really easy to get something up on the screen without, without having to do that. Um, which, which made it tricky because, you know, a lot of literature about how to do ambient lighting sort of assumes that you're using textures. Um, and there isn't a lot on how to sort of, you know, have some sort of analytical model of just sort of relatively nice, smooth lighting. And so I had to cobble together various models of, you know, there's certain mathematical models of um, how much light comes in from uh, sort of a daylight or a cloudy sky. There's a, there's a standard um, for incoming light from a cloudy sky. And so I could sort of look at the math views for that and say, okay, well, if I use sort of, you know, it's sort of like the sinusoidal distribution where it's, you know, brightest above and sort of smoothly drops off um, as, you, as you sort of go down. So there's, you know, less light coming in from the sides of an object than above. Um, and so I sort of basically tried to adapt that a little bit and say, okay, here we have sort of a nice little mathematical model of, you know, some sort of realistic-ish ambient lighting, which is going to give you, you know, a realistic look where the top of your object is a little more brightly lit than the bottom, which is sort of what you'd expect um, without having to pull in a whole bunch of textures. But it was tricky because it's, you know, going a bit uh, into unknown territory. 
you did highlight textures as kind of like a glaring missing feature in Elm 3D scene at the time. The quick example you gave in the talk of just like a 3D rendered spinner on a web page, uh, that was the most inspiring part of the talk for me because the because I thought, wow, like the casual use of a little piece of 3D rendering as a in an otherwise 2D web UI, uh, the fact that you could do that with like flat, uh, you know, no lighting, you just define the geometry and the colors you want and it will render very cleanly, uh, which is probably what you want to, to match the look of a surrounding 2D UI. That ability to do a little casual piece of 3D uh, was r really inspiring to me. So for me, I don't mind if there are no textures in the first public release of the <laughs> 3D scene. Uh, I think there's there's a lot you can already do with it. Yeah. Well, there will be. Um, that no, that has since been implemented. There are a bunch of people who you know it would sort of not be usable without textures. Yeah. And I it's sort of you know you you want to make you want to have a nice story. You only you only get to release version one once. That's a very Evan way of thinking about it. That is definitely influenced by Evan, how Evan talks about things. Yeah. I kind of do want a version where it's not going to have everything. Absolutely. There's so many things that, oh man, it'd be nice if we get this in, but it's going to take some more time. When you said transparency in your talk, for example, my mind immediately went to, wow, you know, okay, there's indexes of refraction. Are we going to deal with that? Is there diffraction of how, how blurry will the show through be? That kind of stuff. That would be a whole other thing. I think that might have to wait until we have you know, real-time ray tracing in the browser. Even very simple transparency is actually incredibly difficult to do well um, just because of how sort of graphics cards work internally. When you start doing graphics programming, you, you often, I, I'm often just sort of very dismayed um, that so much of graphics programming are these like massive hacks that look okay but the way it gets there, sort of the way you get an image on the screen, has absolutely nothing to do with how light works. <laughs> yeah, all concessions to performance. Is it because gaming is driving it largely, and it's just like whatever will look good in a game? Yep, you know, you need, you need to hit your 30 FPS or 60 FPS mm. or whatever. Um, and, you know, in games, you can be you can be very, you can be very careful. So, like, if I'm doing a first-person shooter, and if I have a gun that has like a telescopic sight, um, I know that, okay, so I have some transparency there, right? I have some glass, but I know that that will always be the topmost thing in my scene, right? Nothing will ever be between my eye and that scope. And being able to make that assumption does let you sort of do transparency in, in a much easier way. Uh, but if you have a more general, you know, if I'm trying to make a package, where, I mean, you could have a piece of glass and it might be in front of a, another object or it might be behind that object, um, and I don't know, then it's, it's, it's much harder to do properly. There are, I have ideas there, but that's, that's, yes, that will, transparency will not be in version one. And if it is in a future version, it will probably be in a sort of sim limit, limited, um, limited way that you'll just have to just sort of know that if you do this, it'll break down. Something uh, you you touched on in your talk is like you care a lot about units. Obviously, you made this very rich units package for Elm, and so you chose to design Elm 3D Scene as much as possible using these real world units uh, and yes. and Elm geometry using real world dimensions, and mm -hmm. so that as much as possible you are you are describing a lifelike scene 
to create a rendering on a screen. I imagine there are plenty of people who, for their use case, they would say, I don't really care what temperature the light is. I want that ball to be white. I want that particular pixel to render as 255, 255, 255. How do I get that? Is it possible to support both or have you, have you embraced a particular version of reality for this API? <laughs> no, I mean, the Elm 3D scene, it does support just, um, you know, there's one material type that is, you know, material.color and you give it a color and it will just show as that um, regardless of whatever lights you're using. So like, you know, as you mentioned for, you know, a little animated spinner where you just want, you know, I want this very specific RGB color to match the rest of my page. Yes, that, that's, that's one material type in Elm 3D scene. Um, and then it will render that color and it will ignore any lights that you throw at it. And you, you can mix and match. You can have a scene where some things are a very specific color um, and other things are, you know, use a sort of, you know, a more physically based um, material. Is there a tension between creating the tool set you need for your particular use cases and, you know, the, the pressure to create a generic 3D rendering, high-level 3D rendering framework for Elm? Yeah, I mean, I would like to make it as, as generic as possible. You know, I, I certainly want to support both things like, you know, I'm most interested in sort of technical applications, you know, computer design and visualization and that sort of thing. Um, I do want to make sure it's also... Uh, great for for games, at least certain kinds of games. You know, one thing that Elm 3D scene hides from you is, uh, well, currently at least, is writing your own shader programs. If you're happy writing your own shaders, Elm 3D scene, at least in its current incarnation, might be a bit limiting because uh, it doesn't expose that at all um, to try to help keep things simple. And you know, you can do some really crazy stuff with shaders. So uh, you, you know, you may not be able to do all of that with Elm 3D scene right away. Um, I do want to support. Um, some sort of way of integrating shaders. So you could have maybe a custom material which would be driven from driven by a fragment shader that you would provide or perhaps other things. But that will require sort of a lot more thought and I want to let it stabilize a bit. Those sorts of things start becoming a lot more tied to like the internals of Elm 3D scene because it'll sort of hook into some pretty, pretty internal stuff. Um, and I want to make sure the internals are kind of fairly stable before you start exposing more of them. Bringing this uh, around to some sort of close, I'm wondering what's left for Elm 3D Scene? Like, what is what stands between where you are now and where you would look to release a, a package? I mean, right now, it's, I think it's really mostly just um, documentation is the big one. You know, both API documentation, but also sort of more guide tutorial style things like, you know, start to finish, here's let's make a relatively simple scene using Elm 3D Scene. Um, the couple sort of documents I want to write about, you know, here's why I made certain high-level design decisions, or, you know, here are some just sort of high-level concepts um, that are useful to understand that don't really make sense to, you know, fit in any one function or, or even necessarily one module's documentation. That being said, I'm actually, I think I'm, what I might end up doing, um, and this is something I hadn't, I'm not sure seen that much um, within the Elm community, but doing a kind of a soft launch Mm -hmm. where I think relatively soon I, I could publish, you know, a 1.0 version. Uh, and it would be out there and it would have sort of, you know, somewhat dry, non-illustrated, but reasonably complete, complete, you know, API documentation at least. So that if you were, you know, familiar with the space, you could, you'd, you, could, you could figure out what was going on. Um, and then, you know, people could start using it. Um, 
you know, people who are sort of keen WebGL programmers could start incorporating it into their own apps and packages and playing around with it and finding performance issues and suggesting changes to the API. Um, and then while that's going on, I could be, you know, working on some of the higher level documentation with the idea that sometime down the road, I would actually properly announce the thing and say, okay, now it's actually ready for use. Is it important to you that, that those kind of docs would be in your own words? I mean, you, you spoke about how you would like the opportunity to describe some of your design decisions, and I imagine that you would like to be able to communicate that stuff, but maybe the, the more general tutorially, um, here's how to use the thing sort of user manual stuff I'm wondering if that could be a collaborative thing, uh, leveraging the people who engage with your less documented 1.0 version. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, in fact, I've already talked to a few people who have sort of expressed interest in helping out, you know, with Elm 3D scene. Um, and, and one of the things I've often said is, well, hey, it would be really useful to just, you know, write some little demos that use it. Um, and, that, you know, it gives you an opportunity to sort of play around with it and get used to it yourself. That's a point Evan has made a couple times over the years about Elm is like, if people are wanting to contribute to Elm, one of the best ways you can do that right now is just write about Elm and how you're using it and how it how to use it well. Uh, because that would do more than contributing an, a small optimization here or a, t a tiny edge case bug fix there. Getting it out into the world in a bigger way needs more voices talking about it. Absolutely, yes. I think you know the reference documentation um, and some of the sort of the high-level conceptual guides I'll probably want to do. Um, but I think there's definitely a lot of room for people to contribute and add, you know, here's how you, you know, load a file of, you know, a model of this file type and throw a texture on it mm -hmm. um, and display it with this kind of lighting. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, sort of infinite variety of interesting examples that could be done there. And, uh, and yes, um, I, I hope that, a good number of those will be done by, by sort of others in the community. If I really needed a 3D spinner tomorrow, would you encourage me to fork your fork your repo and trim out everything I didn't need and and just ship that inside my app until your package was ready? Well, or or just I mean I think easiest to check it out into a parallel repository and then add a a relative path to your source directories, add Elm 3D scenes dependencies to your project dependencies, and then you should be good to go. One, one very small restriction I sort of encountered recently, if you did something like 3D spinners, uh, probably can't do it for, say, every row in a table. Um, okay. Because I found out that heavy. most browsers... No, well, it shouldn't be. Um, but most browsers will restrict you to, uh, I think, like 16 separate WebGL scenes on a single page. Uh, okay. Which I found when I was, uh, I was generating some automated test scenes for Elm 3D mm. scene. And so I tried to, you know, render a hundred scenes in one page. And so I could sort of scan all through them all and you know, make sure they looked okay. And it barfed. Um, <laughs> well, that just tells me that people are not using enough 3D to, to tell browsers that we need more than 16 scenes. Yeah, I guess. But I think, you know, the risk of sounding like Bill Gates, I think 16 scenes should be enough for most people, but we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Well, thank you, Ian. It's been uh, it's been great getting kind of the uh, the director's commentary of this this work in progress. That uh, I I I'm sure I'm speaking for more than just myself. I'm looking forward to using in the near future. 
Excellent. No, I, I absolutely. I, I do want it used. Uh, that's, you know, um, I'm always happy to, uh, you know, take feedback, help people out. Um, yeah, I'm publishing these packages because I want people to use them. So if, you're, if, if you are, I'd like to, I'd love to hear from you. Whether you, whether you bring a, something you're trying to get done or you're just willing to help out with the docs, reach out. Yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, or even, or even just frankly, you just, Hey, it'd be great to hear just, I built something cool. This is what I did. I, uh, I love to, I love to see things like that. And it's, um, I love to see how people are using all these various packages and it does really inform, you know, how they get developed and improved in the future. Well, please do come back on and uh, share the launch with us when when it happens. And uh, in the meantime, it's it's there for people to play with. Elm 3D Scene is on GitHub at Ian McKenzie slash Elm 3D Scene. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Elm Geometry, of course, is uh, available wherever your fine fine Elm packages are sold. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Ian. Uh, um, I really enjoyed the chat. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kevin. And thank you, listener, for joining us in Elmtown. I'll see you soon. Bye for now. Bye-bye.